Welcome into episode 30 of the House of L podcast. I am Lawrence Holmes. I am the host of House of L. Welcome in. I'm really looking forward to you hearing our guest this week. I had a really good time talking with George Offman about all sorts of stuff. The old days of the score, how covering sports has changed. We'll get to that in a minute. I forgot. I do this. I keep doing this. I keep forgetting the gift cards to Melly Cafe. So, like, I had to go over to NBC Sports Chicago and drop off Kelly Crawls. By the way, if you if you haven't heard the Kelly Crawl, if you like, oh, well, George is my guy and I skipped over Kelly, go back and listen to it. I, the feedback that I've gotten from people inside the industry, outside the industry of Kelly telling her story, I thought was tremendous. I had one person email me and say that the interview with Kelly was the best House of L non-Goff division. Because, obviously, the the Jason Goff interview is really, really incredible. But thanks to Kelly for sharing and and telling her truth. And thanks to NBC Sports Chicago for putting it up on the website, which is great. Anytime that I could advance the cause of of this podcast and more people get an opportunity to hear it who maybe didn't know that it existed, I think that's wonderful. So I I thank my friend Kelly Krull for having an episode that's worthy of people trying to seek it out and hear what she had to say. She got a gift card to Melly Cafe. They sponsor the interview portion of the podcast. It's great. I was there this past weekend. They got three locations. They have in Greektown, Jackson, and Halstead. They have Grand and Wells, if you're up north a little bit. And I go to Congress in Dearborn. That's where, where me and White Panther went on Saturday, and I got the pork chop and grits Oh, so good. It's a special that they had. It's technically pork tenderloin. I want to be fair to everyone at Melly, but it was so good. There's a picture of it in my Instagram. You just go back a little bit. At Lawrence W. Holmes is where you can find it. It was delicious. It looked good. It tasted better. Go, Go check out Melly Cafe's Instagram page and tell me that you're not going to be salivating. It's delicious. They got the three locations. They help us out with gift cards for the guests, which is great, so that they can go and check out Melly Cafe as well. All right, to the interview. I don't want to waste a lot of time. I've always adored George Hoffman. He was always great to me when I started out as a young guy. I realized, though, that in this episode, listening back to it, Georgie and I talked about a lot of things that are going to seem so antiquated now. We're going to you're going to hear it. They're going to be terms that we use that for people who are younger than I am, maybe maybe a you know a little bit younger and definitely a generation behind me in this radio business. They're going to be like what the hell are you talking about? You'll see when you get there. But trust, I wanted to talk with George because he's seen it all. He's seen sports in this town change. He saw the beginning of the score He's he's seen it all, and now he does incredible work for our sister station, WBBM News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. You'll hear the great voice. It'll bring back a lot of good memories. I'm glad that he was able to sit down and talk with me about the business. Episode 30, George Offman. I'm here to talk to you about stuff, man. Stuff? Oh, no. I'm trying to learn I to, things. I have to remember. I can't remember yesterday. I'm supposed to remember last week, last month, and last year. Oh, I mean, we could probably go back farther. That's uh, at least. Uh, 
least. I do that. I do that with the uh, the kids downstairs. You know, uh, Kevin Jackman. I'll I'll call him when Stan Makita died, and I gotta I gotta I gotta, I gotta tell him about him. You have to understand that these guys, you got to tell things to them. Or Jordan DeArmond, you got to, they're only in their 20s. They don't know these people. And so you got to tell them. You really do. 100% you have to tell yeah. them. You, you've kind of seen the rise of sports radio throughout your career yeah. and the way, how differently sports is now covered. Uh, that's why I wanted to talk with you. Sure. Because can, can you walk me back to before sports radio? In Chicago. Sure. Before sports radio in Chicago, (laughs) you had a telephone. That was it. We carried telephones in our briefcase because that's how we transmitted all of our stuff. Um, There were no computers, no emails, no texting. Texting! There was no texting, none of that stuff. So how did you communicate? You communicated by telephone. That was it. That's how we worked, you know, or letters or whatever. It's, that was the 80s. That was the Jordan era. You know, that's how you worked. You had to make sure you had the phone and you unscrewed the receiver. People probably don't even understand this. And you had something called a, a voice act or alligator clips that corresponded to the receiver of the phone, and that way you could um, connect it to your recorder so that you could send tape to whichever outlet you were sending it to and plug in your microphone so that they could hear you talk. And that's how we worked. That was the only way we worked. That was it. It's amazing. <laughs> it's like the dinosaur. <laughs> I was, George, oh, I was talking with, with a, uh, a producer the other day, and I was explaining the, the way that the score was made up, how there was the feed closet. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, you know how we take in, we send in emails now of all of the sound. Right. I said, there used to be a time where you go in there, you get a phone call from the reporter, and they would feed you the audio like from what you're talking about. And they're like, how, how did that even work? And I'm like, I'm, I'm not sure anymore. <laughs> I'm not sure anymore. This is exactly the way it worked. So back then, as an independent, I had a whole bunch of clients, and they were radio networks like uh, UPI had a radio network and AP, which still does, though it's really been cut down, and CBS and ABC and NBC and RKO. RKO was great because wow. in 1980, RKO, which then became United Stations, was run by Charlie Steiner whose staff included Keith Olbermann and John Martin, recently retired as the executive producer of ESPN Radio. These are, these are my colleagues in this industry. Uh, I mean, those are the people. Those are the people we work for. So you would send your material that way. They took in your audio, and that's how you sent it. And, and I, you know, there were times I could have as many as 20 clients for a game and have two phones in my ear because I'm supposed to go live with one outlet and then I'm supposed to go live with another. And I'm telling them, make me your lead because they're going to go second with me. And as soon as I'm done giving my out cue, the other one goes, and now here's George Hoffman alive at the United Center or the Chicago Stadium. And it was like, whew, we made it. That happened a couple of times. So you're you're ba- it was a balancing act. You'd be doing all this live stuff during games. Where's the most far flung place that you ever did a hit for? 
far-flung place? How do you mean that? Like, not New York or L.A. or... Oh, oh, oh you mean uh, uh, scent stuff, too, or what have yeah. you? Yeah. Far-flung. I mean, I worked for the BBC, so that's London. I, I don't know, far-flung. But there, there were networks all over the country, you know, even small towns. Like, you know, Wisconsin had a radio network, and I was doing stuff. You know, and some of them, unfortunately, went under, didn't pay their bills. But, you know, you were just by word of mouth and reputation. That's what I did for 13 years. I was a radio freelancer. Fred Hubner, uh, whom I worked with at the um, sports phone. So I want to was, talk about sports there, there, phone. It was Fred. Fred called me and he named me the American Stringalo, which was a great nickname. That would look great on Facebook now, wouldn't it? But uh, so that's what I was doing. I did that for 13 years. And honestly, loved every minute of it because I was independent. I was my own boss. I didn't have a whole bunch of bosses like I have now. That's what I did and loved it. When Sports Phone happened. Do you realize that's 40, almost 41 years ago? Yeah. And there are some people who I interact with now who harken back to getting the scores. They remember it. And and remembering guys like you, yeah. Schuster, Fred. Was Gleason on sports phones? The original the original office, which is the thirty first floor of the Hancock building, was Gleason, Les Grobstein, Fred Hubner, myself, Pat Benkowski. And there were others that were in it. So that was the original group. And Dick Gonski who was for a while, I think in the early 70s, the play-by-play voice of the Bulls. I think it was, might, might, might have been 1973 or 74. He was the boss. And, I mean, one of the laziest human beings in the history of mankind. He'd come in the office with a cigar, put his feet on the desk, stay there for six hours and leave. So what the hell do you do for a living? But anyhow, it was a stopping ground, not just for me or for the guys I mentioned. Think of all the people in town who work there now. Joniak worked there Luke Canellis worked there. I think Chris Bowden worked there. Schuster worked there. I'm missing a whole bunch of people. Just about everybody worked at Sports Phone. So, like we talked about how we had to explain the voice act, explain Sports Phone. Sports Phone was really, for gamblers, it was a it was originated in New York the year before. And this is how I have these friendships. John Martin, Gary Cohen, the voice of the Mets, um, Tommy Tig, I don't know where Tommy is these days. Oh, I love Tommy Tig on Westwood One. Yeah, Tommy was Tommy was part of that group, and so you did updates every ten minutes for one, uh, for one minute. You had to be precise on a phone line. You put it in there, you press a button, and then uh, you you're giving scores, and it's basically gamblers are calling, and so they had to call the number, which was nine seven six one three one three. I think that's what it is, or one six one six. Could have been both of them. And and then we did a something called the Quickie Quiz. Um, and there's a guy on Facebook. I think his name is Barry Vershbo. He won all the time. And he still will Facebook me. He won almost all the time. The guy knew everything. And so you did this for so it was six times an hour. Yeah, six times an hour. Then you'd switch off and somebody else would do it. And that's all we did. I mean, it was—it seemed mindless, really, and it was mindless. But it was a—it was a stepping stone. It was a job. It was and my it was, first full job. It was a service too. It was a service. 
Yes, and 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 parents of kids who are calling were really getting pissed off. <laughs> At, you know, well, how come the bill is so high this month? Because there are 12 million calls to sports phone. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It was, it was funny. People today, you know, talk about how, you know, my parents used to get really mad. And then the parents would call, too. The phone bill was so high. So, I mean, it was, it was, it was fun. I did it for about a year and a half until I got myself uh, relieved of my job by leaving I got really bored, and so we were covering games. We started covering games, and I decided to leave a Saturday game. The White Sox were playing. I just, I, I left the game. Claude L. Washington hit three homers, and I got fired. Though uh, Dick Gonski said, I think this is for your good, because I was already starting to freelance, and he was right, because from there I became my own businessman, and I started to cover events, and I started, I sold the Hamiltonian, which was run it, 20 miles from where I went to school at SIU in DuCoin. It was the number one harness race in the world run at the DuCoin State Fairgrounds in September. I sold it. I made a good amount of money. Like three, Back then, 350 bucks was a lot of money. I said, hey, well, if I can do that, maybe I can sell stuff in Chicago. And I did. And by reputation, I got more clients. I started writing for National Public Radio for a morning edition. I wrote for 20 years and did stuff for them. I wrote for the CBC and then would send tape because I couldn't just, you know, send audio. I had to write. I had to do something. And that's what I did. You've always talked about how much you enjoy writing, how important it is to you when it comes to your scripts when you were doing updates yeah. at the score. Mm-hmm. Why was it so important to you? Because I was different. Matter of fact, some of those updates did sound pretty different at times. A little offbeat, I'd say. But, I mean, I just didn't write with the same bend as other people did. And there was always a lace of maybe a little bit of an opinion here and there, which worked well with the score. It doesn't work well with the BBM, but I'm able to kind of straddle the line of how I can write there. It's... It's stylized writing. It's who I am that comes out in that script for two minutes, including audio. I like to use audio. And one of the guys that was really, really good at that, that I really admired, was a fellow named Wynn Elliott, who was the sportscaster for the Sports World Roundup on the CBS radio network. This would be run on their network every hour, Saturday and Sunday, right through the day. And I was... Part of that, I mean, that included Howard David, uh, Jim Kelly, Jim Hunter, now the voice of the Orioles. All these guys were the hosts of these shows. But Wynn was great because he knew how to write around audio. He made the audio speak. It was like you, you have a little relationship with a piece of tape. And I like that. And that's, that's how I started writing, kind of in that style. So it's amazing how you... You borrow from people to be who you are. You have to. It's it's. You listen and you read and you do things and it comes out that. But I started doing these updates seriously. I started doing updates in 1974. That's when I started working, you know. And I was doing updates for the you know the college station and then for 
uh, the, the school station where I became sports director within six months of working there. You know, I, I just, you know, it's, it was, it's been, at first I can tell you, it's been an incredible ride. I've loved it. It's now 44 years and I've loved every minute of it. Was it always sports? Was that, that yeah. drove you? Yeah. Yeah. I, Why? I just didn't want to do news. It was, you know, I grew up here. I grew up with Jack Brickhouse. Jack Brickhouse was not just the voice of the Cubs, even though when you think about it, he's, he's affiliated with the Cubs. He was also the voice of the White Sox and the Bears. And when the Bulls began in 67 then, and for a while, the Sting when they were doing it. So he was the voice of everyone. Well, when you're growing up, you say, you know, I'd like to be like Jack Brickhouse. That's kind of what got me really going when I was a kid and eight years old. Is That's what I wanted to do when I grow up. So that's, let's see, so I was eight, and now I'm, what, 39? Or no, something like that. No. Uh, you know, I'll be Medicare at the end of the year, so that gives you a little <laughs> bit of an idea of where I'm at. Holy cow. That, that put me on the path. And then you, you know, and then there was Brent Musburger, too, and you watched Brent Musburger and how smooth he was when he was on Channel 2 here back in the 70s, and he was on WBBM. You know, he was one of the first sportscasters at, uh, at News Radio in the late 60s. You listen to those guys, and you say, I'd like to be that. And here I am, how many years later, and I'm not Brent Musburger, mind you, I'm not Jack Brickhouse, but that's what I'm doing. When sports radio started, when the score started, did you think it was going to work? Yeah, I had no... There, there were people that said it wasn't going to work. I understand when the score began, that was quite an assimilation of people. I mean, I knew most of them. I knew Dan Jiggets. I knew Tom Sher. I didn't know Jim Memolo. Um, You know, I knew Greeny, but none of us knew Mike North. And that was very different. It's like, this is not a journalist. This is a fan. And he's a little different. And, you know, at the beginning, and and Dan McNeil, of course. And, you know, the ratings were crappy and our hours were terrible. You know, it's a sunrise, the sunset uh, radio station. So in the wintertime, you're on at 730 and you're off at 430. Kind of stunk. And even in the summertime, you're on a little earlier, you're off at 8.30. So but did I think it was going to work? <laughs> I was hoping it was going to work. It didn't take very long. It really didn't. The ratings were bad for a while. And then suddenly people started to listen. And they hired some good analysts like Mike Ditka and like Doug Collins. And that gave it some credibility. Jimmy Pearsall. Jimmy Pearsall was great. Jimmy was just, he was absolutely nuts. I love Jimmy. He was, he, him, people who are old enough to remember and those who don't, the best broadcast team ever in this city, ever, was Harry Carey and Jimmy Pearsall for four controversial, entertaining years of the White Sox back in the late, I want to say mid to late 70s. It was fabulous. Why was it so good? <laughs> there was no filter. There, not only was there no filter on Jimmy Pearsall, there was no filter on Harry Carey, which today, of course, you know, people who have teams want their broadcasters to pretty much have filters. Harry didn't have a filter, and Jimmy had no filter. So suddenly, you know, Lamar Johnson's coming to the plate, and Jimmy will, yeah, Harry, he's fat. 
Jimmy, you know, he has had one biscuit for breakfast too many. And this is what they would do. I mean, they would terrorize guys. You know, they would just literally terrorize him. But my, my favorite one, so Sam Rosen, who was the sports director at UPI, was in town in Chicago, and it's the late 70s. And he's over in my place, and I said, you got to listen to these guys. Okay, just listen, watch the game and listen. So there are games in Anaheim, and, and Harry is there's a little pause in the action. And Harry goes, say, Jimmy, yeah, Harry, did you take your pills tonight? And, and Sam's cracking up. I said, this is what they do because Jimmy had some you know, medical issues, and he would take drugs. And this was the conversation that took place. That was entertaining as hell. It was great. No filter. None. And Jimmy got in a lot of trouble. Jimmy Pearsall got in a whole lot of trouble. And eventually, you know, Jerry Reisdorf was absolutely thrilled to have Harry leave and eventually get rid of Jimmy Pearsall. He just says, you know, didn't fit, didn't fit the motif. But for those of us who heard that and... Uh, I would argue that's the best, at least for me, the best broadcast team I've ever heard here. You broke down some of the the guys that were your favorite. What do you think makes a great broadcaster? Someone who enhances a broadcast by virtue of not only his the upbeat style, but can describe it in a manner that makes you feel like you're part of the game. The best of that was Jim Jim Durham. Jim Durham, when Jim Durham did a broadcast on radio, you were watching the game on radio. Think about that idea for a minute. You could watch a game on radio when Jim Durham did the play-by-play. You could visualize it because he described the action on the floor so precisely you were watching the game, but you weren't. You were listening to it. He was the best. Jim Durham was the best and left us way too early. Um, Pat Foley is great. Pat Foley and Dale Talon are right there as far as a broadcast team goes because Dale wasn't playing with a full deck either. You know, he was, but he was funny as hell. <laughs> really smart GM, by the way. Uh, deserves a lot of credit for the Blackhawks three championships. But they were great because they were exciting and they enhance the broadcast. For me, it's not somebody who steps on the game or who's somebody who is exciting, who enhances a broadcast. And there are those people out there today. You know, I'm not going to mention really anybody now other than we just mentioned Pat because I think it would be unfair to sit here and tell you, oh, I like this person, I don't like that person. But back then, I mean, think of Pat Foley. Pat Foley's now been here since I think it was 1980 or 81. And he's had several partners. And it's interesting. They've all been good with Pat. Billy Gardner was great with Pat. Uh, Dale Talon was great with Pat. Eddie Olchek is great with Pat. Part of that's Pat. Perhaps it is Pat, for sure. Yeah. That, that's pretty good yeah. at, at this thing. What's the most fun you've had covering a sports story? Hmm. That's a good question. There have been a lot of them. I think that Batgate, the Albert Bell Batgate, that that night when I, I, the name of the player on the Indians is escaping me right now. 
skinny pitcher, I want to say. Is it Grimsley? You might, or was, or might, is that the Sammy Sosa guy? No, I don't know. Grimsley seems like it's right, but I can't remember. It was such a surreal story. It was absolutely surreal that, you know, there was this illegal bat that was located somewhere in 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 the somewhere in the building it, you know and you had to go through um, crawl spaces to find it and this is where the the player put it so that was you know bizarre I listen I was at a Blackhawks game last night and saw history you know I I saw a team in Tampa get 25 shots on goal in 10 minutes 10 minutes 10 minutes I mean, you couldn't blink without Tampa getting a shot on goal. That's part of what I like is that when you've done this long enough, you've seen a lot of history. So when you're at these sporting events in which history was made, you remember that. It's a lot of fun to be there. Some of it's happenstance. You just happen to be there. And yet I'm, I know this for a fact, Lawrence. I am the only guy on the face of the earth. I don't know how many people are on the face of the earth who has seen the highest-scoring NBA game in history and the highest-scoring NHL game. And I was, a, I was a spectator at one of them. I was in Denver visiting my college roommate. We went skiing. He had free tickets to a game. I said, hell, I don't want to go to a game. I cover him all the time. What the hell do I want to go to a game? Let's go. Let's go. And the Nuggets played the Pistons. I believe the Pistons won 186-184 in triple overtime. It's the highest-scoring game in NBA history by far, I might add. And then the Blackhawks, I was covering a game against Edmonton, and they lost 12-9. to And that's the highest-scoring game in NHL history. And so, I mean, I should tell the Guinness Book of World Records. The unfortunate part is, for those people on, like, eBay, I wish I had it. I don't. I must have misplaced them. I had the ticket, and I had the score sheet. And the only two things that are missing from my box of all that crap are those two. Uh, do you think it's somewhere? Like, are, are you nah, going to clean I, up? And- I looked everywhere i looked everywhere because i wanted to see what they were worth and i can't find it but when you go to these sporting events like when the orioles lost 21 straight games they finally broke that streak back in 1988 they did it on the south side um i saw john McEnroe play his brother patrick for the first time in a professional match at uic where i saw Chris Everett and Martin Neverdale-Tolova played their last ever match. It was at UIC. Of all things, I'm talking about tennis now, mind you. Well, but you those love things, tennis, Yes, though. but those things happened here, and I was there. And it's like, it's just a little personal resume of being at some of these events. That's what I like the most, is knowing that I covered these events. Generally speaking, the games themselves are kind of tedious until you get to the playoffs. And then you cover a playoff game, and then you're at the first time the Cubs, you know, win a pennant since 1945 at Wrigley Field over the Cardinals, and then they win the um, uh, they the, win the, the NLCS against yeah. the the Dodgers. And I'm on the field. It's the first time I'm on the field at Wrigley Field post game, and there are 40,000 people cheering, and I didn't realize how loud it was in the field. It's louder in the field than it is in the press box. I thought it's loud in the press box. It was louder on the field. And I just looked around going, whoa, this is something. It was a revelation. And that was, what, just four years or three years ago. So these things are are fun, you know. And I'm not done yet having fun. 
That's which is sure. good. We need you to continue to have fun. I love to ask the the OGs, the original gangsters, what it was like <laughs> to cover Jordan. <laughs> Fabulous. Fabulous. What a lucky time in life to have the greatest basketball player in history and an entertaining player. It wasn't just a great player. He was entertaining the way he played. To do this in front of your own eyes, sitting at the Chicago Stadium, you know, on on right on the floor, to watch this happen, to report on it live while it's taking place, was unbelievable. You know, as it, as it grew, and then all of a sudden, here's Jordan and Pippen, and, you know, well, I guess half of them were at the stadium and the other half were at the United Center. But it was... It was a spectacular run because you were watching a player whom you felt like there's going to be nobody like him ever again. And you could argue, hey, there's Kobe Bryant and there's LeBron James. They'll always be an athlete as you go along that might be, you know, comparable, if not better. But for what he did and the team they had and to be a witness of that for the six years that they won the titles, it's spectacular. So was watching the Blackhawks back then, too to watch Savard, Secord, and Larmer and be so good and not be able to win the Stanley Cup because, unfortunately, there was another team called Edmonton with Gretzky and his group that just were much better. Though The 80s were great, you know, for the standpoint of the winter sports. They were fabulous. Loved it. When it came to covering a Cubs World Series, did you think that you would ever see it? Yeah, I wasn't one of those that said, you know, it's never going to happen. You could see the way this team was put together quickly, especially when they, you know, when when Madden came and they got over the hump in 2015, that eventually that group would do it. They did it the next year, but that they would do it, you know, and especially with Jake Arrieta and the way he was pitching and everything happened. Yeah, you know, but I didn't expect the White Sox to do it the year they did it. But Kenny Williams made a lot of moves that year. And suddenly, from spring training, here I am sitting in Houston, you know, in the outfield, watching baseball games taking place that are the World Series. And the White Sox made it. That was incredible. That that year was a little more unexpected. Not the way they played. They played great. And, you know, and, and, and Ozzy was, 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 oh, gosh. That, that's that's 15 minutes itself is Ozzy. Well, wait, let, let, me, <laughs> let me ask you about Ozzy because I say this all the time. Ozzy on the mic is great. It's great. It's great sound for us. It's great copy for the newspapers. It's great video for television. Ozzy off the mic. Just as good. Unbelievable. <laughs> He's... I'm I'm uh, in that one small lull of my career where I was out of work. This was after Webio, and I decided I just I didn't want to go out to any games, nothing. And Judd Surratt, now the voice of the the Bruins, said, "George, convince me, get back to the ballpark. Just say hello." So I went to a White Sox game, and Ozzy is conducting the pregame interview, and I. You know, I'm not going to be close. I'm in the background, maybe about 20 feet away. He sees me, and he gives me the finger. I said, I'm back. <laughs> I'm back. I never felt more comfortable in my life. <laughs> Seriously, it was great. It was absolutely fabulous. I felt great. Now I'm back. Ozzy gave me the finger. I feel comfortable again. Yeah, we we all get that. I, that's one of the things I loved about Ozzy. I just wish it. I wish we could truly properly tell people some of the stuff that 
he shared with us, but we can't. Oh, he, because- had a, he had a blue streak that was unlike anybody you could imagine. You first of all, you know the the on off switch. He doesn't have the off. Correct. He's on all the time. So's Joe Madden, but Joe's doesn't talk the way Ozzy does. Ozzy was nonstop, nonstop. There's something about that group. the The White Sox went in the World Series, and that the hierarchy of the White Sox that I really, really liked. I just felt like they were so representative of the South Side of Chicago. I know it sounds stupid. But when I thought about Ozzy and Kenny and even Jerry, it just felt like these are guys, and I know Jerry's from Brooklyn, but these are guys that are that are of the South Side. Like they're the way that they represented the South Side, I think was a real badge of pride for Sox fans. Like they liked that Ozzy was a little bit off of his rocker and fun and also brilliant. Also brilliant. They liked that Kenny talked tough. They liked that Jerry didn't like the Cubs. There was something about that collective that I thought was just special. And by then, I mean, Jerry was Jerry was already a Chicago. And he may have been from Brooklyn and whatever. He, was. he bought the team in 1981. This is now 2005. And, you know, Kenny had his own style of trying to put together a team. And it worked once. And it worked well. And I was the guy prior to that who said the White Sox will never draw more than 2 million people. They can't draw 2 million people. just don't want to come out to see them. Well, I was extremely wrong. That year they drew 2.5 or 6, and the next year they drew almost 3 million people. Think about it. They're drawing 1.6 now. They drew nearly 3 million people. It can be done. You know, you put a good product on the field, an exciting product, and gosh, they had an exciting product. But they also had a manager who was not only on the back page, he was on the front page. You you can't buy that publicity. You know, that wasn't just plain manufactured. That was Ozzy. And Ozzy's making the front page because he's got a war with Jay Mariotti. And Ozzy's got a war with Kenny Williams. Well, that's a side story. But you know what? I think that helped. I think that helped in that you had a pretty good team. You know, then you you had uh, wonderful pitchers and you had a whole hell of a lineup. And they won. And they should have won more, too. You know, the next year they won 90 games and still finished out of the playoffs because the Tigers in Minnesota won 95. They had Jim Tomey that year. You know, they should have been better, but then they then the slide happened. But that was that was fabulous. I that was great times. And I saw Ozzy recently, and he looks good. He looks Ozzy's, and he's there's nothing different about Ozzy now. Nope, not much. I'm telling you, you know that as well as I do. How much affection do you have for SIU? Well, the, the, the play-by-play announcer there, Mike Reese, I hired him. <laughs> I hired Mike Reese in 1975, and he stayed. And he's been the voice of the Salukis ever since. He's now part of the university. I don't have much of a tie to it, um, you know, other than some of the people that I went to school with. I had a reunion at my house two years ago of staff members, and I had 13 people, and seven of them came from out of town. That was great that I did that. I, I, it's one of the great things I ever did was, look, hey, look, let's get together one time, see what happens. And it was one full weekend, and it was great. But I don't have much of a tie to the university now. And unfortunately, it, there's a, it, they're going through a lot of adversity. They have lost a lot of enrollment. They've mm-hmm. had a lot of mismanagement. The radio TV department is in trouble. Um, and that produced a lot of good people um, in town today. Schuster, Mark Silverman, 
Stu Green, who's the um, behind-the-scenes guy at CLTV. There are Mark Clausen, you know, who's one of the cameramen. Jason Goff. Jason. Goff. I mean, there are a lot of people in this town. It's it's you got you have Syracuse, you have Northwestern, you have SIU, and so I have the lament for that, and I I really do wish him well. I'm going to say a couple of names and play a little word association. Mm. I say a name, you give me a word. Okay. <laughs> okay. Doug Buffone. Love. Love Doug. Loved him. Who didn't? I mean, I, I I wouldn't be surprised if I wasn't the only person to use. Love Doug. He was, he's amazing. It was just, you know, it glommed on you. That Doug's personality was such, I did appearances with Doug. I had so much fun doing appearances with Doug. I mean, nobody knew me. That's fine. They knew Doug. But Doug made me feel like I was important, which was really good back in the early days. But, you know, could you possibly get anything better than Doug and OB? I don't think so. Mike North. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, ingenious. How am I doing? You're doing great. Okay. David Schuster. Do good good guy is that one? We're going to use good guy sure. as one year. We can we can hyphenate good, good it. guy. We, we can say we also can, roommate. I know. Yes, we shared an apartment. Two of them back in the uh, late seventies and early eighties. It'll actually be forty years. Oh, it's forty years now. Seventy eight. That's right. Forty years. Forty years. Yeah. Armitage, Sedgwick, and Lincoln in a basement apartment. I can only imagine. Near the River Shannon, which is still there, by the way. I can only imagine what you guys were doing. Yeah, well, <laughs> we had a lot of fun. <laughs> I, a, I don't want to. If I start talking, my wife might be listening. I don't want to talk about that. All, all right. right. All right. So, all right. L- let me get away from the, the, the word association because <laughs> I, I have two more things that I want to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Why do you love tennis so much? I started playing Actually, Schuster's the one who got me on a tennis court when I was 24. He, you know, he wanted to play with someone, and, he, and he, I never played. So I started playing, and I was awful. I didn't know how to swing a racket, whatever. But I really started to enjoy the sport where I took lessons. And I would go to the downtown sports club, and I took lessons with a guy named Kurt Schmidt, a left-hander. I did 90-minute lessons, and I learned to play. And then I just started to watch, and I loved it. And you had back then tennis like it's never, ever going to be. You had McEnroe and Connors and that, that you know, fiery relationship and Navratilova and Everett and then Lendl and Borg and you name it. And tennis was so incredibly entertaining back then. And from there on in, I, right now I'm, I'm basically a tennis. I still play now. I'm a tennis junkie. I watch the tennis channel. I'm probably one of the very few people that does. I just think it's a great sport because it's extremely physical. It's a very demanding physical sport. It's also very demanding mental, both at the same time. You have to be quick on your feet and quick with your brain just for one shot, let alone a rally of 10, 12, or 14 shots. And I marvel at that. I was just at the Labor Cup, by the way. They did a fabulous job. Those Australians came here and put together a great... I wish that thing could come back here again, but I don't think it's going to be here for a long time. But this is a 
this is a city that could support tennis. You saw that that weekend. They had 93,000 people for five sessions. Uh, I wish it was here. It was back here in the early 80s and 70s when the women came here for a regular tour, and then they had the men here for exhibitions, and you had top-flight talent because they paid a lot of money to bring them in here. And since then, there's no tennis. But I, I love playing the game. Um, I love the challenge of it, particularly at my age. I love running around the court and doing it. So, I mean, it's just a fun sport. I can't let you off the podcast without you giving a wine recommendation. <laughs> Anything that's good Pinot Noir, I'll, I'll, I'll do. But they're very expensive. So, um, you know, I, I will drink. I like to you know, pair food and wine. So I'm not one of those that's, you know, I, I don't like this wine. or I like them all. You know, if they fit the, if they fit the food, that works for me. But if you really want a, a, a good wine to quaff and you want a good wine that pretty, mat, pretty much matches everything, including a steak, a really good Pinot Noir, really good is going to be in your $35 range or up, um, you can never go wrong. So, um, but I'll I'm, honestly, I'll drink <laughs> if it's good wine. And I've had my share of not so good wine. Matter of fact, I did the other night. Um, you know, I just I re- recommend that you, if you do it, do it right. Do it, you know, but try to see if you can pair it with good food. You maybe need somebody to help you with it. Um, it's just great. I mean, I love drinking wine. I would do it all day if I could, but I have a rule. I don't drink until 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, that's a good rule. It is a good rule. I don't, I, seriously, unless I'm on vacation, I never have a drink before 5 o'clock. But then 5 o'clock comes. Then I have a drink. <laughs> and 6 o'clock comes, I might have another. <laughs> Check the clock, we'll see how things go. <laughs> can only drink so much, but uh, I, I do like it. Yeah. Georgie, thank you for this. My pleasure. Big thanks to George for being on the podcast. He's so great. And I'm glad that he was out here giving, he was giving advice on wine. Cause he, he knows it. He's one of those guys that I go to. If I, I'm looking to figure out a good bottle of wine, he's one of the guys that I talk to about this type of stuff. He's, he's got an encyclopedic knowledge of the subject. He was being very modest when he were ta- when we were talking. I also love any time that we can talk about Doug Buffon. Anytime. I'm going to figure out how to have a Doug episode. Like maybe it's talking to everyone that I know that knew Doug and putting it all together. Maybe that's what we end up doing at some point. I don't think we can honor that man enough. It's bizarre. The thing that, that George was talking about, how he was able to make you feel like you were important was great. He was always great to me. I always envied his relationship with Jason because those two dudes, you know, it was like I was in tears watching Creed because that's what it was like. It was, it was like Rocky and Adonis Creed. Like I, as soon as I got out of the movie, I was like, Jason, you got to go see this movie because it's you and Doug. Be ready because it's definitely you and Doug. So we got to do that at some point. Maybe that's, you know what? Maybe the the next episode with Jason is me and him just talking about Doug. That could be fun. 
By the way, check out Jason's new show. He's got a new show on Big Ten Network. If you've got Sirius XM, he's on with our buddy Anthony Heron. I believe it's Sirius XM Channel 372. They do the morning show over there, 6 to 9 a.m. our time. It's great. Heard uh, my buddy Adam Rittenberg on the show. It's awesome. All right, let me take a look at the emails here. This from Todd. Hey, Lawrence, I enjoy the regular over-the-air show. Let me also say how much I enjoy the extra effort on the podcast for those of us who want to listen to it regularly. It's a great addition, and I hope you can make it worth your time. So far, so good on that front. A couple of suggestions. One, you're a Steve Dahl guy, right? Yes, I am. Very much so. Made me sad when I saw the report in Feeder that that Steve's going to be done at the end of the year over at LS. That makes me sad, but I, I know that he'll be he'll be fine. That dude was on top of the podcast revolution before anybody, and he has got it locked down. So yeah, he he's someone that people bring up all the time as a as a guest. I'm I'm working on that. I'm I promise you, I'm working on that. Two, I'm part of a dying breed that really enjoys college basketball as the season is approaching. I really liked your introductions to each local team last year, while getting to know Moser and Muller. With limited over-the-air time, it seems like podcasts would be a perfect place for it. Let me give you a podcast to listen to that focuses exclusively on basketball, and particularly college basketball. One of my producers, Eli Hershkovich, does a podcast called Hirsch on Hoops. H-E-R-S-H. Hirsch on Hoops. He'll get you right. I'm telling you, if you're a college basketball fan, you need to be listening. He gets great interviews, does great work. I am going to do that again where we'll have a night where we have all the coaches on. I just, with the Bulls schedule, Kirby and I are trying to figure a lot of this stuff out because we didn't get them until almost the end of the season last year. So it kind of messes with what we can and we can't do. But I appreciate the the suggestion. It makes a lot of sense. But I'm telling you, Hirsch on hoops. All right. This one from Alex. Lawrence, I'm a little behind on the podcast. I'm catching up this week on the Rosner podcast. You were looking up for suggestions and thinking back to Q1 days. I remember you and Electra having a good relationship. But have you ever talked with Sherman and Tingle? No, I, I think maybe I met them once. Alex goes on to say, I think they would be really interesting interview. Those guys tried a lot of crazy stuff. They were, they were out there pushing the envelope for sure. But I will tell you, Alex, that I have been thinking about a way for me to get Electra, whose real name is Christine, on the podcast. And I think that I can do it. I think we can sync up the boards because she works at an intercom station. She's at the intercom station in New York. We might be able to make that happen. Christine is one of the, the really good people in our business and, uh, the way that she handled doing the hour of radio with me, she said that it was cathartic for her. It was awesome for me. And we kind of grew this like friendship out of it. And it was, it's just terrific. And I'm really happy for her. She got married. She had a baby. She's back on radio. It's, it's, she's a top notch human being. And I'm really, really happy that she has found some happiness and some success that she deserves. And, she was a real innovator, too. I mean, the last letter game was no joke. 
And I'm glad that she's doing her thing because radio was lesser without her in it. So I'm glad that she's back. And more importantly, I'm glad that she's happy because she's good people. Thanks for the email. You guys come up with good stuff every week for me to answer. And I appreciate your your uh, commitment to this podcast. Go check out Melly Cafe. George is going to get a, a gift card from Melly Cafe as soon as I remember to bring it back to the studios. But at least he'll be easy to find. And he'll go check it out. Go back through some of the, the old interviews. I think that you'll like what you hear in a lot of them. And I've got some great guests coming up. You're not going to want to miss next week. I can tell you that much. But I hope that you enjoy this week of the podcast. And that is going to wrap it up. Thanks for your continued support. I, I, I can't say enough how much it means to me that you're behind this and you're telling people about it and you're retweeting when I throw out the interviews. Thanks so much for, for being that for me and, let me know that this wasn't a terrible idea. Next week, I'm not going to tell you who the guest is. All I'm going to say is you'll want to hear it. Glad you listened to this one. See you next time.